Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. This is the second and final installment of our second virtual fireside chat. The conversation affords seasoned leaders the opportunity to candidly reflect on leadership lessons and human performance principles resulting from the many wins and losses they've experienced. This conversation is hosted by LUF senior man Jim McNamara and features FDNY retired Deputy Chief Joseph DiBernardo and Captain Louis Andre. If you haven't listened to part one, we strongly suggest you go back and listen to it as this conversation picks up from where we left off. We're going to transition and we'll go to the, a couple of questions for the, for the chief. Chief, you came on the job after the war years was underway. What was it like to be a junior guy on a job where those in front of you had so much experience? Well, it was just um, keep your mouth shut, your eyes open, and just prove you can do the job. You know, one thing about being a firefighter is the same thing about being in the military and being in combat. You know, you're only as good as your last move. You know, you, you do a great job at 100 fires, and then you screw up a fire. That's the only one they remember. And every time you go out that door, you have to prove yourself. It's not like you're an attorney or you're a CPA or you're a dentist. You do your job every day. Every time you go to a fire, even today, every day, every time you go to a fire, you have to prove yourself. Sure. You, you have to, you can't screw up. You got to force that door. You have to get there, open that roof. You got to move, get water. You got to move in and put the fire out. And you're only as good as your last move. They talk about the bridge build. You build a, build a hundred bridges, but you screw up one. That's the only one they remember. Same thing in the fire department. You're only as good as your last move. And when you work in these busy companies, you have to be as good, if not better than them, especially as an officer. And what was your probie school experience like? How long was it? How hard was it? Well, my probie school was in, I was called to the job. I took the test 61. I was called to the job January 65, but I was in the army. So I came home from Vietnam, like I told you, and, and I was a very small probie class. There was about 50 guys in my probie class. And in those days, they treated us like men. Most of us were military guys. And there was no drill school atmosphere that I see today. So probie school was very, very good. It was uh, just, we just learned about firefighting. And nobody yelled at us, and we didn't have to do push-ups. That's all changed today. Yeah. And um, I actually went to probie school with somebody very famous. Then you know, I mentioned that to you before, Larry Fitzpatrick. Yes. Larry Fitzpatrick was a was a bull of a man, and Larry Fitz and I we did the on graduation. You put on a little show, and Larry and I would practice. We practiced all week. We did a single slide off a six-story building. We did it five times a day for a week, and then we did the single slide on graduation. Ironically, 
Larry Fitzpatrick doing the single slide to rescue probationary fire Frisbee lost his life doing the single slide. So my probie school was, was just eight weeks of learning how to be a fireman. Sure, and you, you talk about the legend of all legends was the boss that day, Tom Neary. That's right. It was a tragic uh, on, up on 151st Street, uh, and his nephew uh, works in 26 truck, and he is simply amazing. Yeah. I worked when I was UFO in '82. I would, I uh, Neary was a fireman at 31 truck. He was uh, something else. How did Neary go from? He was in 103, right? Right. And to get to 31, was there a bus incident? He was disciplined. I know he got lifted out of 103, right, Louis? Yes. And he, they said they punished him. They sent him to thirty-one, and he was just another. He was just another great fireman up there. He made a great rescue up there, and he got the Gordon Bennett up there. Tommy was a piece of work, definitely a piece of work. Chief, can you recall one of the more challenging fires you had during your career? All right, <laughs> a challenging fire. That's interesting. I had so many fires. As a fireman, as a lieutenant, as a captain, as a battalion chief, uh, as a deputy, they all sort of uh, blend together. And I, I just can't pick one out. There was just so many of them that I, I, I don't remember one that was worse than the other. I remember I had a great job on Atlantic Avenue as a battalion chief in Brooklyn once in a, in a taxpayer with the that got in the exposures, to make a long story short, it was, it was such a challenging job with so many obstacles that they took my fire report from that fire and they, um, they used it on the deputy chief's promotional exam on the, oral, uh, on the written part where you had to put a fire out. So they took my fire report from that fifth alarm and um, they use that on a fire report, but they, they all blend together. I mean, I had blocks on fire in Bushwick, and uh, you know, I, I remember like in Bushwick, we had gasoline Gomez running around, yeah. lighting up the fires and everything. And if it got up into the cockloft in those row frames, it went left and right. I remember one day, a uh, uh, this covering lieutenant came up to me, and we had we had it going good in in exposure one, the fire building, and exposure four. And I told him, Lieutenant, you take a hook and skip that building, pull the ceilings in that building, charge your line. He said, skip a building? Me take a hook? I said, just do what I tell you. He skipped the ex that, that exposure, pulled the ceilings, and as soon as he got water, the fire was there and we stopped it. Now, if he would have went in the next, the closer building to the fire, we would have lost the block. So there was lots of lots of fires, and they all blend together. I was at 9-11, and that was like, you didn't, oh, that's another story completely. You just you were overwhelmed. You didn't know where to start. Sure. We'll get to that one in a little while. A question for both of you. As the years go by, what is one change that was implemented to, in the job that you believed helped make the job better in terms of operational performance? Like I said before, the, um, the written material, written material, towel letters, radios, officer school. Let me tell you, when I was promoted to lieutenant, I never went to officer school. One day I was a fireman, next day I was a lieutenant. I went to captain, never went to school. Went to battalion chief, never went to school. 
Went to deputy, never went to school. I never had formal training in any rank. One of the greatest things they have is now you go to officer school at every rank. You know, one day you're a, a captain in charge of the f one room on the floor above. The next day you're a battalion chief and you got the whole nut. Louis? Well, I, I was lucky enough to, uh, be, because I was on a job a little longer, to see, you know, quite a few changes. In other words, uh, when I was a probie, it was the uh, the roof rope. Now it's a life-saving rope. No more uh, uh, nets to jump into, no more uh, uh, scaling ladders, uh, but the uh, self-contained breathing apparatus. Uh, when I was a probie, uh, that was a great, uh, 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 because of the, the, the other masks were no, were no good below ground, and they were no good for carbon monoxide. Uh, when I was a probie, uh, it was hand signals and yelling and running. Uh, Son, get down and see what's, we're not getting water. Get down and see what's going on. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, handy talkies, uh, a, a big help. The equipment, the saws, uh, the, the mechanical saws, the orange plastic gloves. I mean, my goodness, a, a serious fire. If they you'd get hit terrible uh, hand burns, uh, rubber coats, uh, no good. Uh, and by contrast, what was one change that was implemented that you think hinders operational performance at fires? Hindered? I, I'm going to start simple. And, and it's a hindrance, but it was necessary. In other words, when they stopped riding the back step, there was a delay. When you were on the back step, right away the line is being stretched. Uh, when, when we first had the mass, the hindrance was they were kept in boxes and you had to procedure to, to come bring the boxes on and put it down and open them and put your helmet on it. And, and so certain things we learned through the years how to improve uh, those good things that happen and work them better. A hindrance was, uh, but I guess necessary, there was an interchange of personnel on building inspection when uh, uh, the truck members would uh, be on the engine doing their inspection and the engine men were on the truck in quarters. That at times uh, uh, didn't work out so well. I mean, I know we're all trained to do both tasks on the job, but it's different when you have a, 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 a top-notch engine or, or a, a truck company. They, they're specialists, and they do a better job. So that was, a, and, and of course, it was a delayed alarm. You're up in the, uh, the roof of a building, and now you get, a, you get called down. Uh, and, and so there was a delay of, of response. And, and uh, that's one, not a major thing, but I can't think of anything particularly too major that went against uh, a proper operation. Right. I, Chief, I, do you, do I you think that the, the job has come a, a million miles. It, with the uh, training that the, our men get, the equipment that they have, that's, that that, it's just amazing. The, the thermal imaging cameras uh, that, that only the rescue had, and it weighed 15 pounds, and now everybody, that every truck company office has a thermal imaging camera bunker gear. 
the tr- the uh, schools that the guys go to. In the old days, if you were a welder, you got into the rescue company. Today, you have to have special skills. There's eight special, there's eight rescue disciplines that you got to know. The jobs come a million miles. Now they have uh, drones. You know, it's 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 everything is great. There's only one thing that I think is negative and is not a good thing. They've changed the incident command system in the job. Now, as a battalion chief, I would get in, I would place all my companies where I wanted to, and I'd leave my aid at the command post, and then I would go at the point of attack to see how they were doing, okay? And then as a deputy chief, I would come into the job and I had my battalion chief and my all-hands chief. Now, the battalion chief had the fire. He was at the point of attack. And if he wasn't, I sent him into the point of attack. And my all-hands chief was on the floor above where he had the roof. Now, as I, I, especially up in the Bronx or your big buildings or your office buildings, you want a knowledgeable officer at the point of attack. Now, you could have a guy who was yesterday working in a residential area. Now he's working as a chief in the, uh, in the South Bronx. And we have a big H going, and he's standing in the street. Well, I want him, chief, get up there and let me know what's going on. And, and with your own eyes, I want you to tell me this. Okay, so now the incident command has changed in the job. Now the battalion chief and the... <laughs> The deputy chief do not go to the point of attack. The all-hands chief comes in, the second chief, he becomes the, now it's called the operations chief. He's the operations chief. They, now they've given everybody new names. The incident commander, the operations chief, the planning chief, the this chief, that chief, you know, it's all, if they're not doing things the right way. I want eyes, I want experienced eyes at the point of attack. I had chiefs that, that, were, that are assistant chiefs today or they're retired and everything. They came, they sent them up to me in the Bronx and Harlem. They got promoted and they wanted to give them fire experience. They sent them to me. So they sent them to the 16th Battalion, right? The guy gets assigned to the 16th Battalion. Transmits a second alarm. I go in. What is it? It's rubbish in the hallway. I said, Chief, why did you transmit a second alarm? He said, well, I, people were coming down a fire escape. Oh, yeah? Did you look in the building? He said, you looked up, there was smoke. Okay. Did you go into the point of attack? No. I'm, I was taught the incident command system. Oh, that's nice. It has a name? The incident command system. That's nice. Chief, if you would have went into the point of attack, you would have seen it was rubbish in the hallway. Now, suppose somebody's four blocks away is hanging out a window. Now, you just put all these companies in this spot here, and somebody could die over there. I tell you, I broke this young chief in. He retired a borough commander, by the way. Um, He didn't know what he was doing, but he wrote well on exams. But I got him. I think he was shell-shocked from me by by the time he looked to see if I was working, and he was very nervous. But I tell you what, I made him a better chief. You have to be at the point of attack. If, if you're in an infantry platoon you, and you're talking to your 
you're if you're a company command and you're talking to your platoon leaders, they have to tell you what's going on at the point of attack. They can't be back and saying, hey, how you guys doing out there? Same thing like the chief. How you doing up there? You got to be at the point of attack. And the FDNY's changed that now. The deputy doesn't even go in the freaking building. I can't believe that. I prided myself as a deputy when everything was cool and calm. I would pride myself for going in and come walking through the smoke. And they saw that white helmet with deputy chief on it. I go, how you guys doing? Oh, great, chief. How are you? You guys want to blow? No, we're good, chief. But I prided myself on going in and seeing the guys and walking through that smoke. Eddie Kilduff was a captain of 92 engine. He wound up chief of department. And he used to say, boy, the guys love to see you coming in the smoke. Because most deputies didn't even get out of the car. And for God forbid, they should have to walk up five stories. I mean, forget that. But I, I, I was always got in and got at the point of attack. And they changed the incident command. And to me, it, it's detrimental. And I guess I said enough. Okay. If, if I may yes. interrupt for a second. And just give me, as far as improvements, life in the firehouse. What's it like to be in quarters in the old days when I was a probie? Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, son, get down and check the fire. A cold, cold, cold uh, steam heat. Count the bells. A, a system of counting the bells and writing in chalk on the board, box one, one, two, three. If the chief visited quarters, immediately the 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 uh, engine compartment was open. And uh, and the chief would usually come over and and take his finger underneath the, the fender. And uh, uh, so what? It, coming back from a run when I was in '76 engine, wash the wheels, Proby. Uh, and that was because the history of horsemen are in the street, wash the wheels after every run. Well, still in 19. Louis, you on the job with the in, horses? In I didn't I, know that. No, but. <laughs> Not the horses, Joe, Chief, but 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 that that was that was it. In other words, uh, the the old the old student matrons. Uh, luckily for some of the widows, uh, they were allowed to earn earn uh, a, a salary. It was a fireman's wife, and and she was a, a, a widow and a matron and and. If you disobeyed an order or did something wrong, you move coal from one side of the cellar to the other side. And and if you got three rings, it meant that the dispatcher, who was very important, we can't put a fire out or we don't get called to it. And so if Herbie Eiser uh, 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 gave us three rings and said, uh, Fireman Andrade, uh, you're being called to uh, 91st Street, off Columbus Avenue to a brownstone fire in the basement. And and so uh, I hang up the phone and yell, everybody goes, and hit the still button. And they come down and they said, where are we going? Oh, shit. I didn't run it. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had to pick up somebody. Asshole, pick up the phone. <laughs> 
So just a few stories at Life in the Firehouse. No dishwashers. You did, you did the dishwashing. You did a lot of committee work. And uh, things there were fans. Chief Wolfinger walked into a fan coming out of into the bunk room to to go on a chief only call, and he's bleeding. And chief, we got to take you to the hospital. No, I'm responding. And and so different things. How uh, through the years, not only fire wise, but life in the firehouse changed. And uh, I'm probably forgetting a lot of. Of good stories, writing with a quill pen. <laughs> you know, I mean that's that was you, you and know. Ben Franklin, Louis. Uh, uh, Chief Deering, son, light the lantern <laughs> on a chief only call. Limp battalion, get out. Chief Deering comes down and says, "Son, light the lantern," and there was a lantern at the house watch desk, and I said, "Sir, there's a red light at Amsterdam and Ninety Seventh Street." <laughs> I don't care. I want the lantern lit, and I want you out in the street when it's chief only. So, uh, different stories that I I can't remember them all, but they're interesting, and and giving maybe some of the people of today what yesterday was like. That's great. Thank it you. It was great. We loved it. <laughs> chief, what do you want me to we're say? We're gonna we're gonna switch gears. Okay. And. We'll talk a little bit about 9-11. Okay. Where were you on that morning when you learned about the attacks? Me? Okay, uh, I was uh, home. And uh, my aide, Patty Vogt, called me up and said, Joe, turn on the TV. The plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. So I turned on the TV, I'm looking at it, and said, oh, this is interesting. And I had my scanner on for the city. And the reporters are going, looks like a private plane or whatever they started saying in the beginning, if you remember. And I'm looking at that. It said, that was no small plane. That, that hole is too big. That was no small plane. There's something going on here. And I'm listening to my friends respond on the radio. Uh, car 3, that's Chief of Department Gancy. I was a battalion chief in the 2 Gancy, Pete Gancy was one of my lieutenants. I know Pete. Pete's aide was Steve Mozziello. He was my aide in the 228 Battalion. So I'm listening to the guys respond. Um, Joe Callen worked with him in the 6th Division. He was the citywide. Um, the division chiefs, I know all these guys, you know, and they're responding in. And I'm watching this and I'm watching this and I'm saying, yeah, this is uh, interesting. Now, I've had a lot of high-rise fires, not a lot, but I've had a few high-rise fires, and no high-rise fire, no high-rise building in America ever collapsed, ever. They had a fire in Chicago, it, or was it Philadelphia? I don't, I forget that it burned for three days, and the building never came down. So I'm not thinking of collapse or anything. I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be some job. I hope they have the elevators, because otherwise they're going to be walking up. I was at the bombing in '93. Okay, I was in charge of secondary research in the Trade Center. I walked up 65 flights of stairs. And, I, you know, I'm saying, boy, this is going to be a tough job to myself and everything. And then the second plane hits. And I'm watching, oh, this is terrorism. I don't know what to do here. I'm getting a little upset and nervous. I'm listening to my friends on the radio. I know I, could, I recognize their voices and everything. 
And then the building comes down. And I looked at my wife and I said, they're all dead. All my friends are dead. All right, I had to do something. So I, I, I jumped in the car, went to the, this firehouse that we're in today. I assembled the Brookhaven Town Tech Rescue Team, all special technicians in rescue. We went, ran to Home Depot. We filled up uh, two ambulances with two by fours and four by fours. And we responded with uh, ambulances, chief's cars, and tech rescue guys. I responded, uh, oh, and I first, one of the first things I did is I called my son to see if he was working, because I knew those guys were all dead. Thankfully, my son was at a side job in Brooklyn with the guys from Rescue 3, and he was alive, and I, he said, Dad, we, we're going up to the, we're going to the firehouse, we're getting our gear, we're going to the job. I said, okay, be safe. So I knew he was alive, which was good. Everybody in Rescue 3 was killed that day. So I assembled this task force uh, of tech rescue technicians. We responded to Brooklyn, 11th Division. They would they were having they had a manning uh, a pool there, and we were hanging around. He said, "This is bullshit. Let's get into the city." We went over to the Manhattan Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge. We went right to the site, and there was a. They were manning up on West Street, okay? And we got there just as I think Seven was coming down, or came down, and there were a lot of FDNY guys there and a lot of guys from all over there. And um, they were the chiefs, some of the chiefs were holding guys back at that time. Seven had just came down. I tell you, when I got there, it was like the end of the world. I'll never forget it, the dust and the, the destruction. I, it was like we were in a nuclear war. It, it was the scariest thing I ever saw in my life. I made, my, I made my way down West Street. I went through one of the buildings. I came out of the second floor of a building, and I was actually level with the debris. I was looking for the command post, and... Uh, knowing that my friends were dead and everything. And I came across Chief Callan, who was the, in charge of uh, the North Tower. He was sitting on a curb in shock. Um, I tried to talk to him. I picked him up. I threw him in an ambulance. He was in shock. And I, I worked my way to the command post, and um, it was total... I was first time I came out of the building, I think it was the financial center, and I was on this, the west side of the cross bridge, and I could see what was going on there. I worked my way back around to the command post, and I ran into a, a couple of chiefs, and um, Frank Fellini, a couple of other guys, they wanted to know what was going on on the other side of the thing. I told them, and I was there till like three or four o'clock in the morning. And it was like just, I don't know where to start, and I don't know how they knew where to start. It was the, uh, it was just, it was the end of the world. It was the end of the world, and it was, it just looked like we were in a nuclear explosion. And uh, knowing I had lost 40 friends, it was, and this is the 20th anniversary this year. It's. Makes yeah, it even harder. Yeah, and my, uh, 
by the way, the guys that, that was, the, there was only 14 survivors of the collapses. The guys from nine, six truck and uh, 39 engine were in that stairwell and some civilians. And, uh, you know, just, it was just a terrible day. And uh, remember, it was like yesterday and it was 20 years ago. Cap, what were your uh, thoughts? 9-11. Uh, I'm at home with Ruth, my wife, and the next-door neighbor comes over and says, Louie, put your television on. Plane went into uh, World Trade Center. Uh, I, I'm, th I'm thinking of a small plane. Uh, when I see what has happened, uh, I say to Ruth, uh, and, and and before that, uh, I, I noticed one of the uh, command post photographs on, on television, uh, Chaplain Judge, uh, he looked terrible. I, I said, Ruth, some, this is not good. And then I remember about studying for promotion and having uh, uh, some of the, the, the chiefs that Joe would remember that were instructors saying, a well-placed bomb or a serious fire can take some of this new construction down in the street. And I said, of course, uh, we're going to lose a lot of civilians and we're going to lose a lot of firemen. Uh, because 28 floors of fire is just... It, it, it's. So, as Joe did, uh, I remember, I, I believe Stony Brook loaded you up with some yeah. material... And uh, you were you were going down. They said to me, Louis, you were you worked for the city. Uh, take a pumper, and I had some young guys, uh, not long out of high school, and I re uh, uh, remember driving. Uh, I think uh, who was now a chief today, uh, a, a couple of guys, uh, Richie Lute, whose dad was in 40, uh, was a, a fireman in forty two truck. Uh, of course, which we ran in with regularly when I was in '82, and uh, and then we had uh, Tim Devine, who was now in, in uh, a fireman out in, in the lab, and uh, they were all kids basically, and uh, we reported to there were two places to meet: Shea Stadium and uh, Belmont Racetrack. We reported at Belmont Racetrack, and were waiting uh, uh, to be deployed. Let me reiterate something. Uh, I was at the 93 bombing, and one of the things I did was at the 93 bombing, I went with Ray Downey, who was the, the expert in America, and we went down to the, where the bomb went off. After the fire was put out, it was like 200 cars burning. Kenny Serretta put the fire out with a bunch of guys. Me and Ray went down to the hole. We went down to the, where the blast went off, and it took out I don't know how many girders. Now, Ray Downey's number one guy in America, and he looked at me and said, Joe, if this bomb didn't take this building down, nothing will. Now, Ray Downey said that to me. Number one guy in America. I mean, so many support columns were blown out. The hole was tremendous. Ray Downey. Now, I looked at that fire, and I said, you know what's going to be? We're going to, you know what? It's going to burn down to a certain floor, you know, the lowest floor of fire, and, and then we're going to 
It's going to burn itself out, and we're going to get everybody below that out alive. Never in my mind did I ever think would it come down. Never did I. And if you would ask me today, would I think the World Trade Center would collapse? I would tell you no. And I know in my mind they both came down. To me, I, I was just going to burn down to a certain level, and we were going to get everybody below that out. Ray Downey said, this building will never come down. And Ray Downey died that day. So ironic that Ray would die that day. Question for both of you. From your perspectives, right, as you watched us handle that, right, handle the rescue and the recovery, and then stay in the fight, how do you, how do you account for the fact that so many of us stayed in the fight, stayed on the job? Was it that spirit that, guys like you developed? Do you think your spirit from your generation carried forward to us? Yes, I think that the, the FDNY, you know, the, you, you know, there's only one FDNY. I mean, there's great fire departments throughout America and great fire officers. We don't have a, you know, we're not the only ones, but FDNY is special. And we had a lot of guys that were on the job on 9-11, and I, I just think that the people that came after them, they some of that greatness rubbed off on them, and, and uh, to continue that tradition, you know, it, it's just a, a, great, a great department, and we had enough guys from the old days that transited on and, and brought, instilled that tradition in the new guys, and we were able to come back. They made a lot of promotions after that. They, they appointed a lot of firemen. And the young guys today are great guys. They want to do the job. They have great leadership. Not ex as experienced as we were, but they're willing and able, and they'll run through walls for good offices, and they'll run through walls to save people. And that, that greatness, that that. that that came out of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and just it just transcended into the 2000s and it's still there today nothing got nothing like having an fdny front piece on it it's we've got all that tradition and 343 plus one that day and that just put us you know it, it just put us one step above the rest and you know, it's in our blood. And you talk about being in and the blood and connection. Many of the guys that you mentored, you know, Tom Kennedy, Cassidy, were guys who at the end of their careers mentored people like me. And now I carry it to kids who were Good. in fourth and fifth grade yeah. on that day. So you're what men, men like you built carries forward to today. Well, I, I agree with both of you, the chief and you, and uh, the word tradition uh, carries on. It, it, that's, that's the biggest part of it. And uh, I was lucky to be with Jason uh, and our, our group of uh, FDNY uh, Marine Corps Association uh, to visit those wounded warriors, men and uh, women, uh, who were severely injured uh, from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, in my mind, 
every generation is the greatest generation uh, because there's always that group of young people in every generation. Uh, if it's just 1% that go into the military, it, it's, it's that 1% that carries on and does the job, be it uh, going to war or being a police officer or a fireman or a nurse or EMS. And so uh, it, it does carry on. It's just part of being part of the fire service and especially FDNY, I agree with the chief. Chief Joe is right. Uh, we are special, and 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 all throughout the country, in Canada, and the world, firefighters are a special group. Very good one. Amen. On a lighter note, can you tell us about the Batman story? Batman oh, you and want to know about Batman and Robin? <laughs> okay. Back in the day. Uh, Back there when Louis was a lieutenant in 82 and Bob Farrell was the captain of 31, uh, they were going to gazillion jobs and they were they were legends, legendary guys. And uh, they loved going to fires. And then they would uh, buff the radio and listen. And it sounded like a good job. And they know they went on a second alarm. They would sneak and go to the fire. And they would sneak around the corner and get behind a chief. And I think it was Chief Burns, was it, Louis? That, yeah. yeah, okay, so uh, they would sneak around and they'd crawl down, down a block and they'd get behind Chief Burns and he, Chief Burns would go, transmit, to, transmit a second alarm. And then Farrell and Louie were tapping on his shoulder and said, we're here, Chief. <laughs> and he says, holy shit, where'd you come from, the Bat Cave? So from that day forward, they got to be known as Batman and Robin. Batman was Bob Farrell and Robin was Louie Andre. So that's where they got the nickname Batman and Robin. And to talk about Batman and Robin in 82 and 31, we have a picture that the cap uh, presented to us today, the aftermath of box 2743, Charlotte and 170, the busiest firebox in the history of the New York City Fire Department, which is, you've seen many times in old pictures, presidents would show up to see it. Uh, just absolute rubble. These were six-story buildings prior to this? Yes. Yeah. And now they're ranch homes. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and the streets are widened and uh, they're clean. And, uh, <laughs> it's different. <laughs> it's different. 300,000 families moved out of the Bronx in the 70s. Families. 300,000 families. Absolutely out. incredible. We're going to wrap up with one final question for, for both of you. You both continue to actively help firefighters, particularly through the Lieutenant Joey D Foundation, a nonprofit that helps to equip firefighters with important firefighting equipment and, and honors the service and sacrifice of Joey D Bonato of Rescue 3, who was forced to jump on the morning of Black Sunday and succumb from his injuries. What keeps you both still actively giving back to after so many decades around this vocation. Go, go ahead, Joe. Okay. If I, okay. If I could save one life with my foundation, I've done my job. If I can pass on one bit of advice so you can do your job better as a firefighter, then I've done my job. In, in honor of my son, 
who died as a result of injuries in the line of duty. We started the Joey D. Foundation, the Lieutenant Joseph P. D. Bernardo Memorial Foundation, and we want to keep his legacy going. And uh, I can proudly say that in my retirement, I run this foundation, and I've given away to little departments across America and some big departments, Erie, Pennsylvania, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. I've given away, we've given away the foundation, $610,446 worth of personal safety systems. And we've purchased over 1,100 PSS safety systems and given them out to these departments across America. And I have a training seminar every year, and I've trained over 1,300 firefighters. And when I train, I have the best people in America that work for me, and they come to work for me for free because they want to they pay it forward. The best instructors, the best chiefs, Vinnie Dunn. Mike Dugan, all those guys, they come and they teach for me, and we give the best instructions in America. We give hands-on training. We do everything you can think of. A lot of people from the Northeast and the South that don't have flashover trainings. It's a run coming in. We do live burns. We do, we do high-angle rescue. We do all sorts of everything you can think of. And people that can't get that training in their departments, we give it to them. We have, we're having our seminar this November. We've got 275 people from all over the country signed up already. And we've trained 1,300 firefighters. Now, they went home, and they, they took the knowledge gained at our seminar, and they passed it on to their department. So that 1,300 times that by 20, 30... We've trained thousands of firefighters, and I'm sure we are saving lives and property every day in honor of Joey D. And we don't want, and, we, and our mission is that every firefighter in America have his own personal safety system so they don't have to jump out a window like the guys had to do on Black Sunday. You know, buy them the PSS, say they never, and hope they never have to use it. But anyway, my foundation buys these ropes and we have great friends. We mentioned Bob Farrell before. Bob Farrell is a, is a great philanthropist. He sends us $10,000 every year and makes contributions to us every year. Vinnie Dunn, one of the, the most knowledgeable fire chiefs in America, donates his books and teaches for us. And we have Dennis Leary, the actor from Rescue Me, his cousin died in the Worcester fire. He sends me $25,000 every year. So if you're listening out there <laughs> in the world, go on the Lieutenant Joseph P. DiBernardo Memorial Foundation webpage, and if each one of you just send me 10 bucks, you know, we can buy some more PSS for these guys, and you could save a life through me and our foundation. And... Uh, Joey D is looking down. He was quite a character. He was, you know, to be a great fireman, you got to be a little nuts too, like Louie here. Louie the legend was a little nuts, and he was a great character. And my son, growing up, was one of his heroes was Louie Andre. And uh, 
You know, he had a picture of Tom Kennedy on his wall over his bed. Tom Kennedy was Firehouse Magazine with a dirty face, a famous photograph that said, is this what you want to be when you grow up? And my, right? And my son had that over his bed. And the other picture he had over his bed was a picture of Louie as a lieutenant in 82. And, uh, you know, I used to take him to the firehouse. I had him pulling ceilings in bed sty when he was 10 years old. And uh, and he, nothing that he wanted to be more than a firefighter. And he, he, um, and he died doing what he loved to do. So, and he actually saved a life that day. So, saved Jeff Cool's life. So he was uh, very proud of him. And I'm very proud of his foundation. And he goes on saving lives today. Amen. Amen. Chief, thank you for saying those kind words. And it, it was, uh, Joey was just a special son for you and, and a good friend to me. And, and, uh, and just such a, such a great teacher. And, and uh, uh, the, the probe is here in, in Setauket, uh, being a, a, a volunteer. Uh, uh, he just had a knack of passing on his his knowledge and uh, keeping these uh, young people interested and wanting to uh, to learn. And he was special uh, also because uh, he always hugged me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and to those who are retiring and, and, uh, and, and, and young people in the fire service today, uh, and to those who are, uh, are going to retire, uh, my advice is continue to be um, family orientated. If you're at that part of your life where you're married and have children, have a hobby, whether it's golf or, or garden work, uh, riding a horse, whatever, walking, running, jogging, uh, uh, keep busy. Uh, definitely continue to just stay in touch with the units you worked in and some of the men that you work with. Uh, it, it, it's tremendous that uh, uh, Chief DiBernardo and I had the, had the honor and privilege to work with such great people. Uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. And, and uh, we're, we're privileged to have done that. And I look today, uh, and, and I look at the uh, the young firefighters uh, I'm with today, and, and uh, they got a tough job. I think they have a tougher job than I had. Uh, conditions are different. Uh, so much more out there that they have to contend with as far as buildings and, and, and old buildings, 100-year-old, 100, 150-year-old buildings that are gonna, ready to come down and all this new equipment and elect electricity and batteries and this and that. Uh, I think their job is a lot tougher than ours. And, and they're encapsulated, they go in deeper. We felt the heat. We were told, put your hand up, take your glove off, uh, and, and so many different things that uh, their job is so much tougher. And, and I understand today, regarding the military and, uh, and being a firefighter, and I'm not putting down those who aren't in the military because we can't all do that. 
that I understand that the trainers uh, out, at, out, of, out of the rock, they do occasionally get a large number of, of, uh, of people from uh, military service. And they're happy for that because it seems that there is that connection and the job is so, uh, so near to being in, in combat. It's good for the FDNY for the job and, and to continue with that great uh, uh, tradition. And uh, the young people are very good to us old timers. They're very good to us. They respect us. They ask us questions. Uh, what Joe's uh, group is doing is, is, is helping train them and teach them and, and uh, give them inspiration. And uh, I can't say, uh, but only with love that uh, I'm getting emotional. <clears throat> but uh, to work with the, the men, it was just uh, a, a positive privilege and to see the new young men, God, I wish I had their arms. I would kick ass. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to shut up because I've said enough. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, this has been an extraordinary experience. Um, I, <laughs> this really has. And I'll say to both of you, what you have taught continues to this day. And you still, even in retirement, all these years later, are still impacting firefighters today. Thank you so very much for contributing. It's my pleasure. Yeah. It's an our honor. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.